0: So this morning, we're continuing in Matthew. We're going to continue in Matthew chapter 1. Last week was kind of a bridge. Um, We looked at um, Matthew establishing the kingship of Jesus. Um, we, We made the connection from Abraham and Isaac and Judah and Joseph and David and Solomon and all those guys that we were talking about back in the Old Testament coming off of our Joseph series. And we saw the connection that Matthew then makes opening up his gospel with that genealogy. And Matthew was... Uh, The purpose that Matthew did that was Matthew was establishing for his readers that that Jesus was qualified through the promises of God and the genealogy of the line of Abraham, Judah, and David. And we also saw that the way in which Matthew highlighted those three eras of Israel's history, if you remember the era of the patriarchs, the era of the monarchy, and the era of um, captivity. And um, that in that specific line of people that um, God's promised king would not emerge because of the righteousness of his people, but in spite of the sinfulness of his people. This, this long-awaited for king, this long-anticipated king, was going to be a king that would um, not emerge because his people were great, not emerge because Israel was full of righteousness, not emerge because the line of David was so glorious, but he would emerge in spite of the sinfulness of those people. And the, and the message that Matthew is pushing there by highlighting Bathsheba and and um, um, Tamar and some of those uh, situations and those people was that this new and long-awaited-for king, this promised Messiah, would be a king that would rule by grace and not by law. That even in his own heritage, his heritage was saturated with people who needed grace. They needed a king that would save them in spite of themselves. It was a king that would serve his people, not be served by them. And so today as we continue in Matthew in verses 18 to 25 we get to the Christmas story. We get to where normally you skip all of those 40 names and you get to the verses 18 to 25 to talk about the Christmas story. But we're going to look again specifically as we relook at these familiar verses how Matthew is highlighting the uniqueness of Jesus. Because Matthew wants to do something here for his readers. Matthew is specifically written um, to impact Jewish readers in his age, but it's obviously written for us as well. But Matthew wants to unequivocally confront them with the identity of Jesus. And so as you're reading Matthew, you are again and again forced to confront the historic, truthful reality of who Jesus is, not just by his genealogy, but now Matthew does it through his names, right? The names and the titles that he gives to Jesus in such a way that we are confronted with his identity and we can't avoid it, okay? That's the point that that Matthew wants to do here. He wants to bring us face-to-face with Jesus and say, you have to do something about his identity, his identity as a king in the line of David, his identity as Christ the Messiah, a title that he's going to give, and then his identity as Jesus and his identity as Emmanuel, Emmanuel. And so he's going to confront us with these identities of Jesus even as he opens up this Christmas story to us and shows us how Jesus comes. And uh, so I just want to primarily consider these titles and names that Matthew gives to this child born of Mary. And specifically, one name we're going to use and we use most often at Christmas is Emmanuel. And so we're looking today at the name Emmanuel and what that means. But let's just read uh, verses 18 to 25. And notice in these very familiar verses, and sometimes they're too familiar, the importance that Matthew puts on titles and names and how they're meant to confront us with the identity of Jesus. And actually, let's read this together. You can stay seated, which is unusual for reading the Bible, but I'll give you that. Let's just stay seated, but let's read these verses together. They're familiar, but I just want us to to see them again. Verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. So what is in a name? So first of all, we see here in this text that Matthew calls him Christoi, or the Christ, which is the Greek translation of Messiah, or the Anointed One. And so he is the Christ, he is the Messiah that the world has been waiting for. And then the angel goes on and tells Joseph, call his name Jesus, which is the Greek form of Joshua or Yeshua, which means Jehovah saves. And he's going to be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then finally he gets another name as well. Matthew pulls up another name, our Christmas name for Jesus, a prophetic name for Jesus from Isaiah, which is Emmanuel. Isaiah 7.14 reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. And so we have this name, Emmanuel, given to him as well, which is God with us. And, um... Just as an aside, you'll notice as you read different names in the Bible, they have a lot of meaning. And there's two particular um, suffixes most often, prefix and suffix, uh, used most oftenly as a suffix uh, that you'll see recurring in biblical names. And it's where the ah shows up, or A-H and L in Hebrew names. And so ah in Hebrew, it means both breath or spirit, and it's a shortened form of ah-yeh which we see in Exodus 3.14, which is part of the, the I am who I am phrase, right? The, God, the name that God gives himself of Yahweh, I am who I am. And the, the beginning of that phrase is ayay. And we see uh, this shortened form of ah show up when Abram's name is changed to Abraham, right? And God gets inserted into Abram's name and Sarai gets her name changed to Sarah. Right? And so this name of God gets inserted into the name. And then we see it after that in the Old Testament in lots of names like Jonah, Elijah, Hosea, Micah, and of course, Jehovah. And the abbreviated again when we spell Joshua, we take the A off the end. But Joshua is Jehovah, which is the Hebrew version of Jesus. Greek, Jesus is the Greek of Joshua. And so you see this name that is given is the name of God. The, the name of God is in these names and they're meaningful in that way. And then El is the other one. The other suffix or prefix that we see show up in names as well. El is the shortened form of Eloha, which is the singular form of God, or Elohim, which is the plural. plural. And we see L used in many names for God, like El Shaddai, God Provider, or El Elion, God Most High, and all of those El names for God. And then we see it again in the Old Testament at the ends of names like Samuel, and Daniel, and Joel, and Bethel, and of course, Emmanuel. And so these names of Joshua and Emmanuel are not accidental names. They are pointing to Jesus as a part of the identity of God, that he's part of God's people and that he's been identified as self. And Emmanuel is one word in Hebrew, but it's three words in English, and the God part is at the end. It means with us is God, or God with us, or God alongside us, or God accompanying us. And so we have this one word name, this one thing called Immanuel, but we translate it into three words, God with us. And so today as we look at Emmanuel, it seems fitting at Christmas, I just want to look at all three of these words that make up the meaning of this name and consider how Matthew, again, remember, is using this name and creates this confrontation in us with the true identity of Jesus. Matthew does not want any of his readers, and that includes us, that includes you here today, to come face to face with the identity of Jesus and not be able to avoid it. The one thing the Bible will not allow you to do is to simply be mildly interested in Jesus. You have to either accept him as who he is or reject him, but mild interest the Bible doesn't let you get away with, and Matthew certainly doesn't, and it's evident here even in the name Emmanuel, God with us. So first, Jesus is God, then he is God with us, and then he is God with us. So we'll look at each of those three things. First, Jesus is God. Jesus really is God. And last week, Matthew wanted to make it clear that Jesus was the anticipated king promised by God, but he also wants us to confront us with the fact that Jesus is not just a Messiah, not just a Christ. If you were a Jewish reader of this text or you were looking forward to the Christ or the Messiah, they were not actually expecting the Messiah to be God, okay? Of all the faiths in the world that would not expect there to be a man God, it would be the Jewish faith. This is one of the most amazing things about the, the, the Jews at the time who accepted Christ was that of all the people that would consider a man to be God, it would not be Jews. There's one God. He's God Yon. He's God the Most High. He's God the Father. There is one God. And so a man to come along and claim he was God is not something that a good Jew would accept. Matthew is making it clear that we have to understand in confronting the identity of Jesus that he is God. He's not just a promised king that is going to die, but an everlasting king. He's not just going to save the Jews from the Romans. He's going to save them for eternity. He's going to save the world. He says his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, and Emmanuel because he is God with us. And the fact that Jesus is God comes through to us all through the New Testament. That fact of Jesus being God incarnate is told to us immediately, directly, and in every possible way. Nothing about Christianity makes sense unless this is true. And so we see this stated directly in the New Testament in verses like John 1.1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. And then we see again Paul in Acts as he is... Um, preaching in Acts, he says, God purchased the church with his own blood. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. So Paul says, God purchased the church with his own blood. Not somebody else's blood, his own blood. Jesus is God. Directly stated. And then indirectly we see it, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but indirectly we see that Jesus forgives people from their sins, and we understand the ramifications of that. I can't forgive a sin unless it's against me. Right, I mean, if, uh, you know, let me just pick somebody here, Steve, right? If Steve punches Graham in the nose, right? It happens a lot at elders' meetings, actually, more often than you think. No, I'm just kidding. But if Steve punches Graham in the nose, you know, I can't go to Steve and say, it's okay, Steve, I forgive you, right? Graham's going to be like, what are you doing? Like, why Why are you forgiving Steve? You can't forgive Steve unless the offense is against I have to forgive him. And so when Jesus forgives sins, in Matthew 9, 2, when he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, he can't say that unless he means that all sin is somehow against him. That when you offend somebody else, you're offending the image of God that's in that person. When you act in immorality, you're sinning against the morality that God established. The Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus meant when he did that. When you sin, you dishonor others, but you dishonor God. And Jesus said he could forgive sins. He was God. We're confronted with that fact. Another way that the, the Bible shows us this indirectly in the New Testament is that Jesus accepts worship. When we see people worship angels in the Bible, an angel will appear and people will fall down and worship that angel. And what do the angels do every time? They say, They say, Stand up, don't, don't worship me. I, I'm a creature like you. I am created. You don't owe me worship. You only owe God worship. They always say, just get up and don't worship me. We're both creatures. You, I'm not worthy of your worship. But when Thomas gets down to worship Jesus in John 20, 28, when anyone worships Jesus, what does Jesus do? He receives that worship. He accepts that worship. He doesn't say stand up, right? He commends Thomas. He says, you know what you know about me. What you know about me is true because he is God. His followers believed he was God. First century Jews were willing to worship someone who was clearly a man. They were the last people you would expect to worship anyone other than the Father would be Jews. And yet we have this historical testimony of the explosion of the church in the nation of Israel, starting in Jerusalem. And primarily, the church was a Jewish church to begin with. And they accepted Jesus as God and worshipped him. Greeks and Romans were polytheists. They were pantheists. They believed God could sometimes look like humans. In fact, people thought that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes in Acts 14. They actually, as Paul and Barnabas are doing their missionary Journey, and as they're teaching, the Greeks actually want to worship them. Um, The head of the temple of Zeus actually wants to come and bring them gifts and worship them as though they are Zeus and Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas are like, Stop it, what are you doing? We're not God. But the Greeks and the Romans believe that. But the Jews' view of God was that He was creator and transcended creation, and they believed in a Messiah an earthly God-sent king that would free Israel and bring back the golden age of David and Solomon, maybe, but they would not have believed that man was God. And not only that, some of these people who believed Jesus was God knew him intimately. They grew up with him. Can you imagine being Jesus' brother, James? Right? They walked with him. They saw everything. If I wanted to convince you that I was a god... The last thing I would have you do is live your life alongside of me. You will learn in about 30 minutes that I'm not God, right? If you lived alongside me. And that's true of all of us. If we were trying to convince people that we were gods, the last people that we would expect to be fooled that we were gods would be our spouses or our children or our brothers or our sisters. Of all the people in the world that know that I am definitely not God, it's my brothers and my sister, right? But Jesus was born into a family, grew up as a human with brothers and sisters and a mother and father. And his brothers, later on, James was the head of the church in in Jerusalem, worshipped him as God. My brothers will never worship me as God. Okay? You understand? They have all the evidence that they need that I'm not God. But James worships Jesus as God. He grew up with this guy. So there must have been something about Jesus That was undeniably different than every other brother or sister or person that knew him. Because Emmanuel says God is with us. Jesus is God. And so this is the confrontation that we run into. The confrontation with Jesus' identity that Matthew puts before us. When we say Jesus is God and only Jesus is God, we run into that irritating exclusivity and the stunning uniqueness of Christianity compared to every other religion. Every other religion says our founder is a great teacher who has a special communion with God or with the gods. And our founder taught us that morality and goodness, if we're just moral enough and good enough, we will reach a higher state or we will reach God. But Christianity comes along and turns all that upside down. Christianity comes along and says, teaching and morality will never be enough. You can never be good enough. You can never be moral enough. Christianity starts with the worst news that you could hear. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You will never make it. Then Christianity goes on and says, God has come to serve you rather than you serve God. God has come to die for you and you have to trust in him. Don't trust in yourself We need more than teaching and a teacher. We need God to cure our sin. And the common complaint that we hear is that this is narrow-minded. How can you say there's one way to God or only one God? But just imagine if you were sick and a dozen doctors told you that really you're fine. All you need is to eat well and exercise and you'll be fine. But then one doctor out of all of those doctors, you go and visit one doctor, maybe I'm a doctor, and I tell you, no, you've got cancer. You are deathly sick and there is only one medication that will cure you is your response to me going to be doctor you're too narrow-minded how can you say there's only one medication that will cure me all these other doctors say that i'm fine or there's other solutions aren't you being very narrow-minded no we would never accuse a doctor of being narrow-minded if he wanted to save your life if he had the cure that would solve the deathly problem that you're in that doctor might be right or that doctor might be wrong but he's not narrow-minded to say that he knows the cure and that he has a cure for you. And so Matthew's claim that Jesus is God confronts us with his identity. He may be right or he may be wrong. And you can decide today. You'll decide at various points in your life whether you think Matthew is right or wrong. But the reality of Jesus as God and the only solution to our sin is not narrow-minded. It simply is or it isn't. So first of all, in Emmanuel, it is God With us, But it's God with us. And this is just emphasizing the fact that God has come into our world, not just come into our world, but taken our place. And this is the amazing, personal, and humble, and gentle reality of Jesus' identity. I mean, if God is who he says he is, if God is in the form of Jesus, then the miracle in his being identified as Jesus is that God, the creator of the universe who transcends creation, humbled himself to be with us. He put himself in our fragile form. God of the universe put himself in a form to feel hunger and thirst, to suffer harm at abuse and to weep at loss. The God of the universe who transcends creation became intimate with his creation. I mean, think about it. It's one thing, if you think about the traditional ideas of God, to, to create something. It's one thing to be the creator. It's one thing to be... Um, the one who has manifested something into the world. And it's another thing to enter into your creation. And God enters in. And he allows us to approach him. And this is just amazing news that it's not just that Jesus is God, but that he's God with us in our suffering, in our world, in our loss Until Jesus came, when God appeared in the Old Testament, he's almost always terrifying. He's a whirlwind, or he's an earthquake, or he's a burning furnace that that passes through the air. He's a pillar of fire, or he's a volcano, or he's a king on a throne with these frightening-looking angels around him. Almost every time God appears in the Old Testament until Jesus arrives, it's in a terrifying form. God couldn't even show himself fully to Moses because it would kill him. When Moses asked to see God, he had to be placed into the cleft of a rock and God covered him over with his hand as he passed by just to let him see his back as he passed. And afterwards, Moses wore a veil to hide the reflected radiance of God's glory. So imagine if Moses was here today. Imagine if Moses lived after the birth of Jesus and after the cross. Imagine if Moses heard the story of Christmas, that God came and dwelt with his people as a person. As John says in 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Moses had to put a veil over his face, but in Jesus the veil is removed. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. could hear the Christmas story the way we hear it. Moses could understand that we have the very thing that he was denied. He would be amazed. You can know God personally without fear, without fright, without terror. God has come to dwell among you, that all that majesty can embrace you. Moses would have gone crazy to think, where is your joy that God can dwell among you and with you in a way that we could never have imagined in the Old Testament? It would blow his mind. And he would ask the question, how are you not flocking to him that God is with you? And what would we say in response to him? Do we experience the reality that God dwelled with us? Do we live like we have what Moses longed for? The presence of God with us in Emmanuel who takes away our sin. Acts 13, 36, 42 says, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Meaning sin, that's what the law of Moses failed to free us from. That's the reality that we live in now, because God has come to be with us. And everyone, this is not narrow-minded, this is the same for everybody on the planet, everyone who believes is set free from every sin from which you could not be freed from by the law. Everyone is free from every sin. God is with us. And if you just think about God for a moment, God would have to be with us. Because if he's God and we're here on earth in his creation, we're never going to reach outside of creation to reach the creator. The creator would have to enter into his creation and make himself known to us. And that is what has happened. God has revealed himself to us. God has done more than reveal himself to us. He's entered into our creation to be with us. So Jesus is God. He's God with us, which is amazing that he would enter into our world with us. But then he's God with us. Who is it that God is with? Outcasts. People without good references. When you look at the New Testament, when, when Matthew, as you continue to read the Gospel of Matthew, you're confronted again with the identity of Jesus as God, as God with us, and then with us of all people. Just look at the people that Jesus was with. First of all, people like his grandparents and great-grandparents, as we learned last week. But people like the prodigal son, the unwanted worker, the uninvited guest, the woman on her fifth husband, the doubting Gentile, the lame and the sick, the social outcast, the drunk and the immoral. Jesus spent his time and came for sinners and liars and dishonest tax collectors, people who are at the end of their rope, people who were morally bankrupt. Look at the people that Jesus spent his time with. And so when his name, Emmanuel, means God with us, God with but us, who's the us? The us is not the people you would expect. Okay, God, okay, I get that Jesus is God. God came into His creation. Didn't He come into His creation as God to be like sit on a throne and just be worshipped and served by all of the nations? You know, they're all just going to come and, you know, give Him presents and serve Him. No. Jesus comes as God, God with us, and He comes to the the us. When you underline the us in the phrase, the us is the last people you would expect the king of the universe to spend time with. Right? As you go through the Gospels, the us that Jesus spends his time with are the last that you would expect. Matthew 9, 10-13 says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Pharisees couldn't figure it out. I mean, if this guy's the Messiah, this is not how we expected him to behave. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay, wise guys, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to be with them, but Jesus came to teach and to eat with them and to weep with them and to preach hope to them and to forgive them to die for them. And let's not say them. Let's say us. Because he's God with us. Let's say we are the weak. We are the outcast. We are the immoral. We are the uninvited guest. We are the doubting Gentile. We are the unrighteous sinners that Jesus came for. So when we say Emmanuel, he's God. He's God with, but he's God with us. We're the ones he came for. When I visited with Murray Tripp, he would often tell me stories, some of the stories of the old Murray. The Murray, and I wasn't here, obviously, I came here five years ago, but some of you have been around Halliburton long enough to know the old Murray before he came to Christ. And Murray would tell me the stories of the bars that he wasn't allowed to go into anymore because he was kicked out for fighting. And, uh, you know, he would tell me the stories of how he'd get up in the morning and pour a pint glass, half vodka, half beer. That was his version of a Boilermaker. Half vodka, half a pint of vodka, half beer. And he'd drink that in the morning before he went to work. And then after work, because he made a lot of money, he'd walk down the street past the bars he couldn't get into to get into some of the seedier bars that he could get into and spend his night drinking there and getting in fights and getting kicked out of another bar. But later on in life, Murray woke up one day knowing Jesus Christ, and he looked at that half pint of vodka and half, half pint of beer, and he said, Murray, if, if you're a real man, if you're the man that you know who you are in Christ, then you never have to drink that again. And he never did. <laughs> that's right. He poured it down the sink, and that was the end of that life. But when we say God is with us, that's, that's who Jesus came to be with. Came to be with you, came to be with me, came to be with Murray. Murray to transform lives, not to be with the Pharisees and with the people, the self-righteous, who think they got it all worked out. He came to forgive those who needed forgiveness. He came to strengthen those who knew they were weak. So three quick applications here as we finish. If Emmanuel means God with us, if God is God with us, if Jesus is God with us, then some of you have to stop doubting or scoffing Because God is doing something here. He is confronting the world with the reality of His identity. He has told you who He is and He is telling you and showing you who He is and what He has done in Christ Jesus. This is God. And if the premise of this reality is that God created the whole universe, don't let your skepticism over a virgin birth confuse you. Right? I love people who are like, I can sort of accept the idea that there's a God or something, but this virgin birth and these miracles, they're just too hard to believe. Okay, so you believe that there is a... Super powerful being that created the whole universe, but you can't handle a virgin birth. right? You can't handle healing a paralytic. right? It's just not rational. The way that Matthew presents Jesus to us, the way that God gives us Jesus and the things that he does, he confronts us with the reality he either is who he is or he isn't. But if God is with us and if Jesus is God and he is with us, then your skepticism and your doubting has to disappear. That's the first application. If God is with us, then some of us have to stop doubting or scoffing. If He's God, if secondly, if He is God with us, then get with Him, get near to Him. Some of us have to get closer to Him. Look at what God did to get near to you, and what are you doing to draw near to Him? God was in heaven. Jesus was in heaven. He had equality with God, it says in Philippians, but he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself to become a man and to to even suffer and to die even death on a cross. Look at what God gave up to be near to you. And some of us, me included, have to look at ourselves and wonder what are we doing to get near to him? All the things that Jesus has done that God has done to draw near to you are true. But do we draw near to him? Do we live as though the veil is removed, that you can approach the God of the universe? Do you live as though he has set you free? Moses would trade places with you any day of the week. If Moses had a choice of what generation to be born in to spend time in communion with God, he would love to have lived on this side of the cross, on this side of the birth and death of Jesus. And some of us say, well, I can't get close to God because of my sin." That's the same argument as for the skeptic. If God created the universe, do you think your bad habits are a problem for Him? Sin is not God's problem. God has a solution for your sin. The only thing that will keep you from drawing near to God is you, your pride, your unwillingness to confess that you're bankrupt, your tiny spark of self-righteousness that you want to muster up to try to learn, earn your way to Him. The only thing that will keep you away from God is not your sin, just you. And so if Emmanuel means God is with us, then, me included, we have to get near to God. Because God has done much to get near to us. And finally, if Jesus is God, then our lukewarm response is not rational. Matthew's introduction to this Christ child does not leave us this option. And this is what you run into as you go through the New Testament, and especially as you go through the Gospels. There are sort of three reactions to Jesus as people run into him. They either want to kill him, they run away from him, or they fall down and worship him. The only thing people don't do is just be mildly curious about him, to just have sort of a lukewarm, tepid response to Jesus, because he doesn't leave us that option, Matthew doesn't leave us that option, the Bible doesn't leave us that option. The identity of Jesus is such that we're confronted with the reality that the same people in the New Testament are confronted with. Some of them wanted to kill him, some of them wanted to run from him, and others desired to worship him. The good news that Matthew introduces to us in this gospel is that this anticipated king, this child anointed by God, is God. He's not an impersonal force or an absentee intelligence that ignores his creation. He's not a distant power that sits on a mountain like Mount Olympus out of reach. The good news of the gospel is that God has communicated with his children God has even reached into our world and made himself known as intimately as he possibly could to us. He has joined us in order to be with us, alongside us, in order to save us. Damaged and dangerous and wrecked and rebellious and broken and bankrupt people, that's the us that God has come into the world to save. The good news of Christmas, as I framed it from Tim Keller before and such a good way of summing it up, is that we are more sinful than we ever, dare, ever imagined, but we are more loved than we ever dared hope. And God himself has come as a child, born to an unwed teenager in a small one-horse town, to join in our suffering and to show us his love. And so the message of Matthew is quite simple. In his identification as Christ, as Jesus, as Emmanuel, these names, this heritage, He confronts us with Jesus and asks us the question, what are you going to do with who Jesus is? There's no other name by which we are saved. There's no other way that we can pay for the gift of this salvation except through what Christ has already done. As I read in Acts, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Jesus. Everyone who believes. That just means trust. Trust that Jesus is the Son of God. Trust that the life Jesus lived and the death he died and the resurrection from the dead is the sign and the seal and the promise that he has saved you from your sins and know the love of God this Christmas. That's what we are confronted with in the identity of Jesus. He is who he says he is. He's done what he said he was going to do. He's the only way that we can be rescued.